Hi ho ho, it's me, Iso Takahata, back at it again with a new episode of the Boy Time Podcast, and as always, I'm joined by Babby and Paul. Mm. We have a slam dunk episode this week. Um, We had the Nintendo Direct, uh, which we made predictions for last week. Some of them came true. Um, Someone could clip last week's podcast because I said that we were not going to get a new Mario game. Granted, it wasn't a new 3D Mario game. But... It was a new Mario game all the same. And I wouldn't have counted like a Mario sports game because we get those all the time. But I'm talking like a mainline Mario game, which we are getting. Um, I guess we'll talk about that. We could. We could. There wasn't a whole lot to talk about in the Nintendo Direct in my humble opine. um, Just because I don't really play Pikmin. So I don't have a whole lot to comment. There was a big chunk devoted to Pikmin 4, which is fair. I might play it when it comes out. Um, Just because I played Pikmin 3 and I really liked it. I don't think I ever finished it, but I did really like it. And I haven't played the first two. So maybe I should. I've heard they're fun. And I guess now they're on the Switch. Uh, They just got remastered and ported over. For before the fourth one came out. Um, I've heard, though, it's a little bit disappointing because one of the big fun things about the original Pikmin games is that it's... I don't want to say implied that it takes place in, like, a post-apocalyptic Earth. I would say it's, like, almost explicitly said just because the entire world is, like, there's no humans and, like... Like, all everything is, like, ruins and stuff. And, like, you can find real-world objects, and they, like, put in product placement, which is probably, like, the best use of product placement because, like, you can find, like, Energizer batteries and stuff like that, which in any other game would be, like, completely take you out of it, like the monster in Death Stranding or something. Uh, but, like it kind of, like, really goes to help a lot with world building, and I guess they took all of the real-world product placement out of the Switch versions, just made them, like, generic batteries or whatever, Um, which is kind of disappointing because there are, like, some, some times where I think product placement in video games actually works really, really well. Like, for, for example... One of the most downloaded mods for Spider-Man PS4 on PC, which is confusing, is something to replace all of the billboards in Times Square with real brands and billboards, Mm. Um, which I never downloaded it because I have not played it on the PC, but... I don't know. I think I think touches like that can go to to make realism a little more real. Oh, yeah. Make the corporate wasteland we live in in <laughs> the uh, video game world. That's what yeah, I've always said. Especially like simulators, like you have those American and European truck sim, and like some of the top mods are like real advertisements on advertisement <laughs> boards. Why would or you want that? Real truck brands or real. Real everything. Well, I guess real truck brands I could see. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. When it comes to like real truck gas driving, stations, real gas stations. Okay, I could see that too. That's, that's still weird. <laughs> see that? I it's love a- BP. <laughs> <laughs> I would die for the Dynaco Dino. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I think don't. much. You just gotta float in the ocean for a while. Eventually, one of the oil spills will happen. That's true. That is true. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll give the new Pikmin a shot. I should also probably play that Metroid Prime remaster because I have not played any of those games either. I don't think I've even played a Metroid game, so maybe I should do that. But. Not today. I'm still I'm still playing Tears of the Kingdom and I don't even I, I'm like almost I'm almost through getting all of the uh the like light root things in the in the underground level. Just because I wanna get all of the original suits. Because you can find like a bunch of like link outfits from all the different games and stuff and i've not had a complete set except the wind waker one and i'm like i don't want to dress like the wind waker one even though i like wind waker a lot it's like the most basic outfit it's like give me the ocarina of time one or twilight princess or i think i think skyward sword is in there i think i've only found the pants though so i don't know where the rest of that is but i think twilight princess is probably the coolest one um but yeah, so I'm not. I, that's the only thing I'm. I've been gaming on for a couple months now. So mm-hmm. sorry. Um, but I guess speaking of gaming, we can get started with that Nintendo Direct. There's only two things I thought were of note. Um, you know, if this were the old days, then we would be talking about everything. But let's let's keep it streamlined here. Um, I thought that, you know, I think it's pretty G-dang cool that they're remaking uh, the Super Mario RPG. That is uh, a game that is pretty inaccessible, and it's a predecessor to, I guess, the, just the entire Paper Mario um, series, franchise, if you will, um, where it's a, a Mario with RPG elements. Um, there is no Paper Mario in the Thousand Year Door, without Super Mario RPG. So, I think it would be pretty cool. I like that they are, they are keeping the original art style. That's something that people have been complaining about with this Nintendo Direct, is that they've ruined Mario. They've, they did exactly what I was talking about last week, where I'm like, everything's too clean. We need to, we need to go back and, and just make it more stylized. And that is exactly what they did with both the Super Mario RPG and the Super Mario Wonder, I guess. What was it Wonder or Wonders? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. The, the 2D platformer. But it still has that, like, Nintendo sheen. It's very clean, but they're very stylized. I think the Super Mario RPG, they just kept the original art style, which the game was on the SNES and it was doing 3D graphics. It would be like if they remastered Donkey Kong Country and kept, like, the weird, like, hot dog fingers the same. That's exactly what they did with Super Mario RPG. Um, They made them really short and weird-looking, and I love it. (laughs) So, 
Um, I'm a big fan of that. I think that's pretty cool. I've never played Super Mario RPG, so maybe I'll give it a shot when it comes out. Um, plus, you know, a lot of people really want Geno and Smash Brothers once they make a new Smash Brothers, and I think he's only been in Super Mario RPG, so I guess it would be good for more people to, to know who that is. Because he's like a puppet guy, I think. He looks like Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess let's talk about Super Mario Wonder. Because this is a, a new 2D platformer. Uh, I guess this is officially kind of... Well, I guess... Uh, this is the, the, the new 2D platformer. We are getting away from the new Super Mario Bros. series. Which... Um, is good because I think those games kind of every they were burnt people got burned out with them like it was pretty cool the first one it was like oh cool we're back to 2d platformers and then the second one was on the Wii and I was like oh cool another 2d platformer and then they added four-player co-op that's pretty cool and then they did two entries in the same year one on the 3ds and one on the Wii U and both of them did not add anything pretty much from their other either the the console version was pretty much the same as the Wii one and the super new Super Mario Bros. 2 was pretty much the same as the other DS one so I think people were done and it, they didn't even change the art style or anything and the art style was pretty bland uh, I think that is probably the main criticism of the new Super Mario Bros. Uh, I guess series but now we're done with that, and we're going a, a new 2D Mario Bros. Uh, thing, a uh, Super Mario Wonder. Uh, this it, it looks weird. It looks kooky. It looks like they're taking a lot of inspiration from, I guess, the, the new Donkey Kong Country games, where uh, they, they completely mess with the art style. Like, there was one, one part where... He can turn into like a springy guy and jump on a big Goomba and it's like all silhouettes. And that is something that the the new Donkey Kong Country games do a lot. Like um, a lot of the like water levels in uh, Tropical Freeze were like kind of the blue and then like you were just kind of like a black outline of Donkey Kong. And then like if you had and then it's like tie was like red and that was the only bit of color and like Don- Diddy Kong's hat if you had Diddy Kong um, just like those little accents and I think that's kind of what they're going for here really uh, you know mixing up the art style a little bit I think it's pretty good it's definitely a good change I think um, I-, I saw a side by side like art comparison with uh, I believe it was New Super Mario Bros. U, comparing it to Super Mario Wonder, and, like, some of the poses, like, running, and, like, ground pound, and crouching, um, and it is, it's, it's crazy, like, the the new one has so much character to it, they, they're using smudge frames, which I, I've never seen a video game do, I'm sure it has happened before, but, um, I guess for those those who don't know what a smudge frame is in traditional two D animation, like picture 
picture Tom and Jerry cartoon from from the fifties, and Tom is slamming a, a baseball bat on 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 old Jerry that is tied up in a, a, a an electric chair or something. I don't care, but as he's like swinging, uh, like mid swing, you, you like pause the frame there, and like the bat kind of has like trails behind it, or there's like copies of the bat in front and behind that is to like simulate motion uh and animation and that is exactly what they're doing here like if you pause the video while mario is running there's like ghost legs like behind and in front of where his legs are actually in the uh the position in his run cycle um and I'm like, wow, that is, that is cool. It, it, we actually are getting some, like, real animated things here instead of just, this is a 3D model in a, a, in a 3D world that is just 2D for some reason. It's like, okay, got a reason here, and it's, it's looking good. Uh, also, you can become an elephant. Uh, an elephant that walks on two legs, though, so I don't know what that means. Also, not a I, real elephant. Not a real elephant. I have seen people say that there is because uh, Daisy and Peach are both playable. Um, I'm assuming uh, this is going to be four player co op like the other ones, uh, and I guess they got rid of the Toad because who wants to play as the Toad? I get that that's a reference to to Super Mario Bros. Two. Um, the American one, not the Japanese one, where for some reason it was, you could play as Mario, Luigi, Peach, or Toad, and then they're just like, oh, let's keep that going for some reason, instead of uh, uh, an interesting character, because who wants to play as Toad? They should have had Wario or, or Daisy, which is what they did. I think they replaced Toad with Daisy. So that does imply that there is going to be a Princess Peach and Daisy elephant version Let's go. Yeah. I'm a little scared to see fan art of Elephant Peach and <laughs> Elephant Daisy. Yeah, that's not going to go very well. No, it's not. Um, who's who's that one? It's like Shad Man or whatever that does like the, the messed up fan art things. Is he oh, gone? He's like a pedophile. Yeah, yeah he's gone. <laughs> okay, he's good. Gone. That's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, because I do not want to see his art. Well, I guess in general. Sure the furries will pick up the sweat. <laughs> the There's an elephant there. That's you can true. work with that. That's true. What I really want to see, and this has probably already been done, but I want to see like a real elephant with Mario clothes on. Someone should do that. It, it's already happening. Like, as I'm saying it, it's already existing in the world. Because, um, I mean, people have just been... Um, using that frame of because it's weird because the trailer ends with him turning into an elephant and then like pinholes uh um this there's so many nods to like 50s animation here we're like um i'm sorry if this is getting jargony but like i feel like do people know what pinholing is do i have to explain pinholing mm, i don't know what it is okay I I'll explain it to Paul. Uh, you know, like, 
Okay, let's go back to Looney Tunes, I guess. Uh, at the end of the Looney Tune, and then it would go, da, 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 and then it would, like, circle in on Porky Pig, and then you would pop up and go, da, 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 that's all, folks. But it's just, like, as the screen is getting closer and it's just becoming, a, like, a small circle, that's that's called pinholing. Generally ah, used to end okay. something. So it pinholes in on just the elephant. So it's just a little circle of the elephant, and I've seen people turn that into their profile picture and... Um, because it has like a border around it. So it's like a perfect profile picture. So it's probably what they had in mind. Maybe. I don't know if mm. Nintendo's that hip, honestly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. It looks pretty cool. And I love when Nintendo does this. They're just like, Hey, it comes out in October 20th. So I mean, less than four months away. They announce it, and I think that's pretty cool. I like when studios do that. I saw, <laughs> I saw t- uh, this week that um, I, I don't know if it was Todd Howard or if it was just someone at Bethesda. They said that Elder Scrolls Six is at least five years away. Still, they showed that off in the twenty seventeen E three. Isn't that long ago? Yeah, <laughs> which means. That if it comes out in 2028, it will be 11 years since it was first <laughs> announced. What is the point? <laughs> uh, you know, GTA 6, we know that's being developed. Didn't need to show it off at E3. They just made a post. They made a tweet about it. Bethesda could have done that. Saved us all the trouble. Um, especially since they weren't even working on it. Like... I think they've mostly been focusing on Starfield for the past, past like, five years or so. Um, yeah, I, I, I have no idea. And also, Todd said this is going to be his last Elder Scrolls. Um, or, I don't what? know, I don't know if he says it's going to be his last game, but it was like, this is my last Elder Scrolls. Um, which I guess, I guess makes sense. I mean, he's been doing them... I think since the third one, right? I don't remember when he kind of came in. Yeah, I don't remember if he founded yeah, Bethesda. I don't. I don't know. The, I don't know the studio lore of Bethesda. I I know that he was in the development of the third one, which is Oblivion. Right. Mm, it's Morrowind or Oblivion. Morrow. I thought Morrowind is the fourth one. Am I right, I Paul? Paul, you have played these. I haven't played Morrowind, but that's the third one. Oblivion. It's after, it goes Daggerfall, and then Morrowind, oh, and then Oblivion, that's and then Skyrim. Oh. oh, okay, I got them all mixed up then. And then there's Elder Scrolls Arena, and that's the first one. Yeah, but no one talks about that Nobody one. Nobody wants to. Nobody. Even though there's nudity in that game. Mm-hmm. I think there's pretty close to in Daggerfall, too. Unfortunately. I'm just from like the '90s, so I mean, why yeah. wouldn't there be? That's true. PC gaming I, in the '90s was weirdo mode. I tried playing Daggerfall, but oh my god, it is difficult. I gave up like two hours in, because <laughs> like it takes like ten minutes of just going pressing W, pressing S, du- pressing W, pressing X, mm-hmm. and just rapidly clicking. Like that's the combat if you're doing melee, and it takes so <laughs> long because like. 80% of your attacks miss. Yeah, wasn't that like, 
That was in the late 90s that came out, right? I think so. Yeah. I guess, well, when did Quake come out? Quake was in the 2000s. 96. Doom, when did Doom come out? 1824. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, which I watched a whole video. I don't know. This is we're kind of bouncing all over the place. I watched a video about the the Doom, uh, map. The fan made Doom map. My house dot wap. <laughs> um, Keep getting that video recommended for some reason. I've never watched any of that stuff. It's good. Uh, it showed up, and I'm like, oh okay, I'll watch it. I, I guess that shows what I watch. All of my videos are either like a two minute meme goof or two hour video essays uh, there is no in between uh, so yeah I watched it it's very good very interesting um, I don't know how that map was made especially for the original Doom is, is how that original Doom works and I think the the map size for that map is bigger than the first two Doom games combined, like, over four times. Yeah, because they're, like, two megabytes or whatever. Um, But, yeah, very interesting, very interesting stuff. But I think that'll do it for gaming. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. There was a Game Awards concert. Okay. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what you want from me. Um, but let's move on to some, uh, I guess, movie slash film industry news. Um, I guess we'll we'll just get the movie news out of the way first. Um, but Ari Aster, uh, visionary filmmaker, uh, he announced his next movie. It was rumored that it was going to be a western. And he kind of confirmed it, although if if uh, I was worried about Bo is Afraid, I am very hesitant about this one, just the description alone. The, the movie is called Eddington, which already, I don't know what that is. Uh, it's described as a Western noir ensemble movie set during the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> I just said like a bunch of words that don't really mesh well together. Already great for SEO. (laughs) (laughs) For real, Um, already Western and noir are kind of weird um, genres to kind of mix, and then you add COVID. What is this a time travel Western movie or is this a Western (laughs) set in twenty twenty? So not a Western. Uh, I don't know. I'm very confused. Um, especially after Bo is afraid, I am just, um, I'm like, oh boy, what what is even happening next? Because I feel like he has completely lost any semblance of, um, I think he's just thrown relatability out of the window and he just wants to be like a super artsy guy. Um, Or at least that's the vibe I'm getting from Bo is Afraid. Because I think all of the like, you know, white girls that really liked Midsummer, I don't, I don't think they (laughs) 
understood Bo is Afraid. I don't understand Bo is Afraid. Um, I, <laughs> uh, so I have no idea what to expect with this. I will see it, but I am nervous about it. Hopefully he can prove me wrong. But that's it for movie news. I want to go see Asteroid City. I, it was not playing in my my town. Greg Marcus? Greg Marcus. For some reason, he's, a, he's one week behind the curve always. I had to wait a week to see Bo is Afraid. Um, and now I had to wait a week for Asteroid City. Came out this weekend. No, no screenings, but this weekend there is, so... Hopefully I will see it this weekend. We'll see. The the show times have like a weird gap. It's like 1, 4, and then like 9, 30, and 10. And I work on the weekends. So, and I have to be up by 6. So if I have to, I can't go to like a 9, 30 screening. Or, no, well, I could. But I'd be very tired the next day. Um, so... I don't know. We'll see. If I get off work early enough, which uh, probably won't happen, I could get to the 4-1, but we'll see. So hopefully I will talk about Asteroid City next week. There's probably not going to be a whole lot to say, but uh, we'll see. Um, But uh, we need to talk about some big industry news things. Oh? Uh, Yes. Specifically having to do with Warner Brothers Discovery. I am surprised that this is not bigger news. It was like in a couple headlines and then it kind of disappeared and nobody's talking about it anymore. Um, But Warner Brothers Discovery, they're looking to sell $500 million worth of film and TV music publishing assets, which is... Giant. I mean, for 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 reference here, it is listed that it is a little bit less than half of their entire assets here that they are looking <laughs> to sell off. You and, also have to realize how um, many labels and things are under the name of Warner Brothers. Right. It is probably like around fifty percent. <laughs> yes, uh, especially music. I feel like yes. like what even. It, it, there is there a WBM? Is that what it is? Um, I don't know if they go under that name. It's interesting because there's a whole bunch of subsidiaries under it. Mm-hmm. And like even things like Epic and stuff that are big music labels are still part of the parent company of like Warner Brothers, if it is Epic. I don't remember which label it is. But it's a whole pipe, pipeline down. <laughs> I know. Like, this is huge. Yeah. I'm surprised no, like, and like, uh, I feel like they've been in the news a lot. Just like how they keep goofing. Um, Oopsie. Oops. We made the Flash. <laughs> What's the Flash? Please. <laughs> uh, I saw they announced who the Superman and Lois are going to be in the James Gunn Superman Lois. movie. <laughs> Lois. Uh, and they are they are two nobodies, which I think are good. I don't know. I think well, Henry Cavill wasn't really a big name before he was in the Zack Snyder movies. Um, So, I don't know. I also saw that James Gunn said that um, they are, like, years and years away from casting a new Batman. 
I think that's good. Robert Pattinson's really good, so why recast him? Um, although I think it would have been good to give Henry Cavill a chance, because <laughs> um, uh, he was not given good material. I would say, um, maybe give let give uh, Henry Cavill like a chance to do a real Superman movie, written by a competent writer. Um, and a, a good director. I would say James Gunn is a very good writer-director compared to Zack Snyder, who is... I won't, I won't say he's the Neither worst. <laughs> I wouldn't say that he's the worst, but he isn't good. Uh, I think his most competent movie that I've seen, I have not seen 300 or his Dawn of the Dead remake, but his most competent movie that I have seen is the his Watchmen, and that is almost entirely due to the source material because he just straight up took all of the dialogue from the comic and just put it on uh, a script. Um, and you know the movie's good when the original author of Watchmen refuses to watch it. He's just True. like, I don't, I don't care. And like, I feel like from what I've heard, it goes against the entire vision. And it does. Why would you turn Rorschach into a hero? Doesn't make any sense. It's a little sus. <laughs> Let's just turn Rorschach into Batman. Like, this yeah. racist... It's really racist Batman. <laughs> really racist. In the book, that's like his whole character, is that he's just racist and he hates women. But let's just turn him into a cool detective <laughs> in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. And I know they're a little off topic here, but I guess something that, that I think James Gunn is going to do very well with his superhero stuff is that, um, compared to Zack Snyder, is that Zack Snyder does not care about real, I mean, quote-unquote, real people. He only cares about superheroes, and he likes to compare them to gods, I mean, look at Man of Steel or Batman v Superman or or even the the Snyder Cut presented in 4.3 to preserve the artist's vision. Um, of course. Of course. Uh, those three movies treat Superman like he is the next coming of Christ. There are, even in Batman vs Superman, there is a scene where he is saving a family from a flood and there's a low angle shot of him like flying down with like a kid and like the sun is behind him and it has like God rays coming around Superman as he's lowering this child that he rescued down to their family. And then like all the people like put their hands on him because they want to touch him. And it's just like, why this is a goofy guy in tights that wears his underwear on the outside. Like stop trying to turn him into Jesus. Okay. I think that's what James Gunn is going to do right, is that Superman is kind of inherently goofy, and you kind of need to embrace it, which is James Gunn's whole shtick, like in everything that, that he does. So I think I think we might have a chance that this is going to be a good Superman movie. I know those are pretty rare, but I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see. Um, I'm also a little bit hesitant 
to trust James Gunn right now just because he is the CEO of DC Pictures, or I guess co-CEOs. And he said that his favorite movie of the year was The Flash, so I just feel like he can't be trusted. Uh, Although he would be... I guess betraying the brand even if you wanted to give another superhero movie if you wanted to say that his favorite movie of the year was Spider-Verse that might be bad a bad look um, although I think he did an interview where he listed his like top five favorite superhero movies and I think like one of them was Spider-Verse the Into the Spider-Verse and this was like earlier this year so I think before mm. the new one came out. But I'm like, oh, okay. He's he's willing to uh, to, to say something. But I, I just don't trust him right now. I'm a little bit, I'm a little nervous. But Guardians 3 was great, so we'll see. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with all this Warner Brothers Discovery stuff. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to really impact anything uh directly it's just kind of a weird it's just another indicator that they seem to be circling the drain which is crazy because warner brothers was maybe one of the biggest well not maybe it was definitely one of the biggest film like media empires um i guess in history rivaling only disney i would i would say um, and now Disney is, is going strong. I guess their movies aren't doing great, but, um, yeah, Warner Brothers just can't seem to get it right. I'm not sure what's going on over there. Um, but, yeah, interesting stuff. But, uh, I guess that's it for news. Um, move on. Uh, I have, I, I watched two movies this week. Um, I watched, I was going to watch some Miyazaki movies because, uh, I watched a very interesting video on some of Miyazaki's history. I'm like, oh, this will be good. Watch some Miyazaki movies. I watched one Miyazaki movie and I, eh, I wasn't really a big fan of it, surprisingly. Um, and that, that movie is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, um, yeah, this one it's it's written and directed by by Miyazaki. It is, I guess his his dystopian sci-fi movie. It reminded me a lot of Fantastic Planet, that uh, that movie with the blue aliens with the orange eyes. It's French from like the seventies. Um, I'm a cool film bro because I know about Fantastic Planet. Just wait, I'll reference Wizards later. I haven't seen Wizards, but I, I've seen the poster. Um, yeah, uh, this movie is, uh, I guess, I, yeah, I don't know. It takes place, like, I guess 200, I don't know how long, but it takes place after a nuclear apocalypse. And, and I guess for oh. those who have not seen many Miyazaki movies, that is a running theme. Miyazaki is avidly anti-war. Uh, he is pro-environmentalism, um, and all of his movies tend to have a theme of of just kindness. I would say of the ones that I have seen that 
not only of kindness, but of kindness being the strong or brave thing to do, which is not usually the case um, in, in movies, at least to the extent that Miyazaki does it. Um, yeah, so, th- so this movie is about a princess who, I guess, eh, I guess technically a princess, but not in like the sense that we would maybe think of it. Um, where like her, her like kingdom or people is just this kind of small, like valley village that, um, there there are a bunch of people that rely on the wind. They, they use gliders to get around and this valley, since it's between two mountains, there's kind of a wind tunnel that goes through. So they are able to harness the wind and get around that way. Um, and they kind of, uh, there's this big conflict going on, I guess. Outside of the village, there seems to be... There's this one other tribe of people that are trying to conquer another tribe of people because even in the post-apocalypse, uh, you know, wars still happen. Um, and, yeah, that is... That is, again, a running theme in Miyazaki's movies. I think my favorite Miyazaki movies that I've seen are... Princess Mononoke, and uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle is his anti-Iraq war movie, and Princess Mononoke is just kind of general war, bad, environment, good type movie. And I think this movie is pretty much the same. Um, environment, good, war, bad. Um, the The main antagonists in the movie are are building this super weapon to wipe out the, the it's like a poisoned forest. Um, and this poison forest has these huge insects um, and that, that kind of defend it. And humans cannot enter this poison forest without a gas mask because there are poisonous fumes all around and you will die if you don't wear the gas mask. And... The gas masks are futuristic gas masks that make you look like a bulldog or something. Yeah, kind of, they're jowly. Kind of funny. Um, but I think, I think, you know, it's interesting. There's also the, the kind of architecture of the planes is also something that Miyazaki does a lot. Um, borrowing designs from real machines of war in his animated movies, even ones that take place in, more in fantasy, um, which makes sense. I, for those who don't know, Miyazaki's dad, um, I believe he owned a factory that made rudders for planes, and this was immediately... Well, he would have been cognizant immediately after World War Two. Miyazaki was born in 1941 in Tokyo and his dad I think it's technically his brother owned it but then his dad kind of ran it um so they made planes for the war uh his dad was actually a soldier uh, for the imperial uh Japan army but I think he was discharged um after refusing to fight so that is 
Okay, so yeah, that's all over Miyazaki's stuff. Um, also, a lot of his movies feature strong female protagonists, which this one does too. Um, a lot of that is from his mother. Um, I, I forget how many siblings that Miyazaki had, but it was a pretty big family. Um, and he was probably the closest to his mom. And while Miyazaki was pretty young, she was diagnosed with spinal tuberculosis, which limited, I guess, just her ability in general. Um, and a lot of his protagonists are, are females that use kindness to kind of overcome these adversities that you would think would need violence or, or other hostile actions to overcome. And a lot of that is inspired by his mother and basically kind of putting his mother in positions in his movies where it's like, Oh, if, if she could, you know, walk and, and be more able, this is what she would be like. So it's, it's kind of, giving his mother a new life in his movies, which is very, very sweet. Um, unfortunately, I think this movie does it the worst out of the ones that I have seen. That's not to say it's bad, but I think in general, this kind of heady dystopian sci-fi, not really for me, for the most part. Um, I really like Blade Runner, but there's so much noir elements in that one to kind of keep me along there's a mystery um and a, an investigation you know i love an investigation movie um this uh is more or less just like we need to save our people from bad from the bad tribe uh, who are building a super weapon um and i don't know it was it was just okay i don't i don't have a whole lot to say about it um, I have, I thought it was just interesting because I watched this Miyazaki kind of video essay and then I immediately watched this movie and there was a lot of things that I was noticing from that video essay in the the movie, um, but I was not really entertained by the movie a whole lot. I, I gave it a three out of five. It's pretty middle of the road, but I, I gave it a little extra just because really the animation... And everything was was really great, which is not really saying anything when it comes to Ghibli movies, because I feel like that's almost a given uh, for most of them. Uh, I think the last Ghibli movie that came out was a 3D animated movie, um, but it's still in like the anime style. I've never really been a fan of that. Um, like, you can do so many things <laughs> with uh, anime. 2D anime, um, like the weathering with you guy, he's doing phenomenal stuff with, uh, with 2D animation. Um, and also just Ghibli in general, it's just a testament to, um, what you can accomplish with, with 2D animation, with the anime style without, um, without kind of just like turning it into, you know, stereo, stereotypical kind of anime stuff um, that I'm mm. not, not really a fan of because um, it all just kind of feels the same. Um, there's a lot of character in Ghibli movies, a lot of really great design of, of creatures, of, of people, and all of it is very deliberate and um, 
it's just it's just great. If you have not seen uh, a Ghibli movie, I would. I mean, what are you doing? They're all what on. You doing? <laughs> they're all on Max. Uh, when I was like, and you know, it's actually very fortunate. Right now, right now is maybe the best time to watch these movies because they're all readily available. When I was just starting to get into animation, just starting to get into movies like seriously, like five, six years ago, these movies were not on any streaming service. You would have to, like, it was to the point where you would have to buy them. Back in my day. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, like... No, yeah. You'd have to buy them. You had to get digital or, like, um, physical discs. And so, like, the first time I was exposed to these movies, I was in art school because people bought the discs because these movies are so good. They bought, like, box sets of all of them, and I would w- we'd watch them, and my mind was completely blown. I had no idea that you could do this with animation. And now they're just out there on, on Max, plus... There is the Japanese version and the dubbed version. So you got both options here. But honestly, and and I, I might get shot in the street for this one, I actually prefer the dubbed version of Ghibli movies. What? That, that's, oh. that is not the case in, like, every other thing. But, man, they they knock it out of the park with casting. Like, in, in Nausicaa, a movie I was not particularly fond of. They cast Patrick Stewart as as one of the main guys. I'm like, yo, that's Patrick Stewart. That's awesome. Um, like Christian Bale is in Howl's Moving Castle. I'm like Billy Crystal. Uh, like they get great people. Um, and you know because they're getting like professional actors, like they and you know they they just do a great job of bringing those characters to life. And, you know, that way you don't have to focus on subtitles. And with Ghibli movies, you want to focus on those visuals because they're really phenomenal. But I would say a good starting place, I mean, obviously Spirited Away or My Neighbor Totoro, even though, and I might get shot in the street again, Totoro is not necessarily my favorite. Um, It is really good, though. It's very good. (laughs) It's very good. It's just... um, it's the, most, it yeah, it's the most yeah it's the most simple yeah. it's a good entry i think i think if i was a kid i would have loved totoro oh absolutely but uh i watched it much later in life i watched it for the first time last year so um <laughs> it brings a kind of peace that you can't get with many things that is true that's that that's the true. main pro of that movie it is very simple and sometimes you just need a simple movie um I would say Spirited Away is also very simple. Yeah. But there's a little more to that one. Um, there's a lot of Totoro, weirdo it's like characters. you don't know like if there's even a movie happening for like the first half of it, <laughs> and you're just okay with it. So. Right. <laughs> right. That is true. Um, yeah. But I I don't know. I think Miyazaki may be one of the best. Like, I, I know... He is kind of known in animation circles as one of the best directors in, in animation. Honestly, he is just probably one of the best filmmakers of all time. And if you are into movies and you kind of turn your nose up at animation, you're really, like, missing out here. Like, these are these are phenomenal movies. Even though I was not such a big fan of, of Nausicaa, like, 
I cannot sing Miyazaki's praise enough. Which is why I'm going to talk about a Ghibli movie that is not by Miyazaki. Um, but honestly, honestly might be one of the best movies I have ever seen. Um, I'm still kind of reeling from it. I just finished it um, about an hour ago. but So I'm not going to have a whole lot of in-depth things to talk about. Also, I don't want to spoil it. Um, but unfortunately, going back to what I was saying about pretty much all the Ghibli movies being readily accessible, this one is one of the few ones that is not. It's not on any streaming service. I got it on Vudu. They were running a sale on it for some reason, so I could either rent it for $3 or buy it for 5 so I was just like, eh, I'll buy it. Why not? Uh, so I bought it, and I'm never, ever going to watch this movie again because it was soul-crushing. The movie is Grave of the Fireflies by Isio, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Iso Takahata, um, who has, I think, uh, I don't know how many Ghibli movies he has under his belt, but he has, I think, three or four. Um, it's this one, Castle in the Sky, and um, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Those are the ones I know he did. I know he's made other movies. But this is, I think, if you're going for a Ghibli movie um, and you're going for that style, this one is real. This is a real-life kind of historical fiction type thing. So I'm going to give kind of a premise of this movie, but then like I'm going to try to keep most details either vague or just not included because I think this is like maybe required viewing. Um, if uh, just if you are alive, I think you should watch this movie um, because holy moly, this is maybe one of the emotionally most emotionally dense and like devastating movies uh, that I have ever seen. Um, but it is a, a movie about life in, I don't know exactly, I don't think it's a real town in Japan, but it is life in Japan right at the end of the war. It's like 1944, 1945, that kind of range. Um, it is it is so incredibly sad. <laughs> I think that is just the best way to put it. Um, it starts off, the, the, the main kind of crux of the movie is that it is this, I guess, just this family. Um, the dad is a Navy officer and he is off fighting the war. The mom has heart troubles, um, but she's doing her best to raise, like, I think it's like a 15, 16 year old boy and then a six or seven year old girl. So very young kid. And then you have a teenage son who probably grew up too fast. That's kind of just where we're starting off here. Um, and they have to deal with regular firebombs that the Allied powers were doing, these kind of air raids. Um, and like within the first like five minutes of the movie, their entire village is burned down and the kids are separated from the mom. Um, and, you know, from there, like, you would think by then, you know, that's, that's a pretty sad start. You know, surely it just goes up from there. No, 
it goes down from there. The entire movie is just a downward spiral of how life in Japan during the war just got worse and worse as the war kept going on. Um, you know, like as, um, as factories and stuff were getting destroyed or or closing down for whatever reason, like other factories had to, uh, pick up the slack, um, which meant that more money and funding had to go into the war effort to try to rebuild factories while also keeping production up in existing factories. So then food production went down and, you know, this, this, 15 year old he basically had a job at a steel mill and he also went to school but the factory was destroyed and so was the school so like where is he supposed to go is he supposed to just join the army he's still a kid um and he and he also has a a a seven-year-old sister to take care of and um it is it is just so, it's so good, and it's so different from other Ghibli movies, like, I think a lot of, like, Miyazaki movies, they tend to, even if you're dealing with really kind of heavy things, like, um, like the Iraq War, they aren't talking about it directly in Howl's Moving Castle, but it is pretty explicit that that's what that movie is about, um, you know, there's that, there's this sense of mis like kind of whimsicalness, a sense of, um, that, you know, just a sense that good will win and that things are going to get better. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that Miyazaki, like, you know, that's a running thing in his movies is that he doesn't want evil to win or he doesn't want his movies to end really sad. Um, uh, but I guess Iso Takahata does not share that same philosophy, which I guess if you are going to be talking about life in war, um, you, you yeah, can't you pull pretty. punches. Um, mm-hmm. Especially like Japan. And, and at, at, I mean, this is 1988, so Ghibli hadn't really got like the international kind of recognition that they had gotten by the 90s to early 2000s. So this is still early Ghibli stuff. Um, but, yeah, if and I guess they probably didn't have a Western audience in mind here. Like, they might have had later in their, um, in, I guess, just Ghibli's existence, um, because their movies are pretty big over here now i mean you got christian bale and billy crystal and howl's moving castle in the 2000s so um yeah but the the dub of this movie did not have any big name actors in it i think it would have been you know not a good career move in the late 80s to to star in a uh, an english dub of a anti-american um, like life in Imperial Japan movie, like I guess forty years after World War Two, but still that's like still pretty fresh, I guess. 
Like, a lot of mm. World War II veterans were still, I guess a lot of World War II veterans Especially were still Especially for alive. Japan, since America basically, like, helped them rewrite their constitution and completely change, like, the entire yeah. way of life. Yeah, it, yeah. They're still reeling from that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they still can't have a military. Uh, that is still in their constitution. Although, technically, they have a, I think it's called a self-defense force. Yeah. And that's how mm. they get over that. Uh, oh, yeah, they... Fun fact, the self-defense, the uh, defense force actually made an anime to try and get <laughs> Japanese to join it. <laughs> and it's, awesome. it's one of those, like, go to a fantasy world and you have funny, like, knights and dragons, except you go fight them with, like, helicopters and rocket launchers and stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. I would watch that. I, I should do, I should do a segment on uh, like stupid military propaganda. You should. I know like great. I know like Israel uses like weird models like like model chicks and stuff to like <laughs> do that. They got Gal down. Gadot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Although I don't think this is military propaganda. This is it's pretty no, anti. No. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying it's a separate segment. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But I think, uh, yeah, if you get the chance, check out Grave of the Fireflies. Again, I think this is, this is required viewing. I need to make a list. There, there are a bunch of movies that I say are required viewing. I need to compile this. Um, and maybe it's just all the movies I've given five stars on Letterboxd. But I don't know. I feel like I need to to make a list. I I've thrown around the idea of like making like a real American citizenship test, um, because who cares who like the fifth president was? Like that's not that's not actually going to help you be an American citizen. There are a bunch of movies that's like okay, you want to know you want to go to America and you want to be an American citizen. This is what it's going to entail. And just watch a bunch of like watch American history X before before you become an American citizen. Or just look at like watch CNN for three days. And then if you still want to be in the country, you're in. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Yeah, I need to, I need to do that. I think that would be good. Um, But I think Grave of the Fireflies is definitely going to be up there, especially because a lot of, um, especially here in America, you know, like, it's weird that that the the nuclear bomb thing is a debate when it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know, was it a bad thing to bomb civilians? It's like, yes, I mean, of course it was. System teaches you that it was like you know a thing and it happened. And you're like, this ended the war technically. Yeah, at least that's the way that's kind of phrased. I mean, I remember we're learning about it and it was like, whoa! I didn't yeah. like have a gut reaction where it's like that wasn't good no just kind of like oh okay yeah i know my world war ii like ended the war correctly i believe they were already planning on shuttering but not yet because the soviets were like almost pushing into korea and then like the nuclear bombs were just the okay fine we'll do it yeah. So yeah. it would have happened, but it happened like, a lot sooner. Yeah, it kind of kicked off the U.S.'s Cold War campaign, too, because they wanted to show strength immediately after. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it gives them Japan to rebuild. Right. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, th- this movie does not really go into that. No, uh, in it fact, need to, since it's J- it's it's from Japan, people kind of know that, <laughs> right? Um, in fact, the nuclear bombs are not brought up at all. Um, mm. It is just the firebombing campaign. The this kid, smart. this kid does not even find out that the war is over until like weeks after the fact, and he finds it out just because some people are talking about it on the street. Um, because, you know, he doesn't have a radio. He doesn't have any way of knowing that the war is over. Um, and so it is It is a very kind of, you know, it's a very small kind of view on a very specific individual view on the war. Um, and I think it's based I mean, on a book. It's pretty universal, too, because you could talk about Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, right. anything mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia following that, so... Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pretty smart move. It, it is a smart move. The, I will say, they, they aren't brought up explicitly, but um, in the first firebombing thing that burns down their village, they bring up that it was that city and one other city that were completely destroyed by firebombings, and the imagery that they use of their village being burned down... Um, I forget what the guy's name is. There's There are, like, a handful of photos that survive the immediate act aftermath of... Oh, yeah. I forgot um, that I think Nagasaki he yeah. was in. Um, yeah, photojournalist, worked for a newspaper. Um, he was, I think, on his way to work, and the nuclear bomb hit. And he lived on the outskirts of town. He was, I think he was riding his bike into work, and the nuclear bombs hit. And he took photos i think only five or six made it out because he didn't have a dark room he didn't have any way to develop these photos he was developing them in the river um so there aren't very many but i had just written a paper on this um like as i graduated this year um it's my big kind of senior thing um and i spend a long time talking about that guy um, and looking at those pictures and they used imagery from those pictures in this movie and the initial firebombing I'm like oh that's very smart this this movie is very very smart and how it does everything how it how it talks about these issues um, and it's so weird seeing the studio Ghibli logo the, the, the Totoro thing <laughs> pop up and then just this incredibly devastating movie Um, but yeah, so it's definitely worth renting or, or, or buying. Um, I'm glad that I own this, but I'm never, ever going to watch it again, at least for the foreseeable future. I, I can't imagine wanting to put myself through that again, but I, I think it is something that, um, people should, it's, it's important. Um, so yeah, it's like it's like googling pictures of Emmett Till's face or something. It's like you have to see it once. Um, just so that, you because it's like it don't go away after that. No, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't. I don't think anyone can come out of this movie and be like, I don't know. There's like two that. sides to every war. It's like the Anthony Bourdain quote, where it's like once you realize like what Henry Kissinger did to Cambodia, like you'll never want to stop punching him in the face or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I don't know much about Anthony Bourdain, but I do kind of respect him for that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that is all All I have to say about these movies. I, I of course, gave that one a 5 out of 5. I think this is my first 5 out of 5 of the year. Um, Yippee. We'll see. We'll see if that changes. I think there's potential for Across the Spider-Verse to go up, depending. I, I left a half star. See how it finishes. Um, but I think that is it. That is... Uh, that's it for five star movies. I don't think I've seen any others. So, yeah, definitely give it a give it a sh- a, a watch. I think I'm gonna watch Princess Kaguya for next week. Um, done by the same guy. Uh, it came out a year before he died, so I don't know. I don't know what this one's about. It looks like a completely different art style. It looks kind of sketchy. Um, like there isn't a whole lot of color to it. Just kind of like line work. Um, at least based on the posters and the stills I've seen. So, I don't know. Looks like he makes some weirdo stuff, uh, and I'm into it. So, um, yeah. But I think that's it for for stuff. That's all I have for teasing next week. I, I really don't have any idea what's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, I've been working a lot this week because I'm, I'm basically a sub for someone, and uh, the person took the whole week off. So I've been working, uh, I work every day except for Wednesday. Um, so I've just been very, very busy. But we'll see what happens for next week. But that is, that is all I have. I will pass it on over to James now. My James is going to be super happy and awesome. Awesome. Let's Great. go. Um, Decent week for music, although I do have a Swans album to talk about. Oh, so nice. Big week for music. Um, so I'm going to get everything that's coming out of the way real quick, and then we'll dive into that. Um, so Alchemist just announced this week. He's got a new EP coming out this Friday, Flying High. Um, features on that, we got Earl Sweatshirt, Billy Woods, Boldy James, Mike, Jay Worthy, Larry June. Uh, it's going to be very good. Uh, Alchemist never stops making stuff. Yeah. So. This should be fantastic. Um, so I will talk about that next week for sure. Um, I'm glad we're getting another Earl Sweatshirt and Billy Woods collab. Um, because the the one time they've done it, or one or two times they've done it, it's been fantastic. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that's coming. Uh, Lil, Lil Uzi Vert's finally dropping uh, their pink tape uh, this Friday. Um, covers atrocious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they like started to do this trend where they just find random like IG artists and like they're like yeah that's the cover cuz most of them are pretty bad the one he the one they finally like chose was decent but I still don't like it um I might listen to this I don't know um I mean I only listened to Eternal Take because there was so much hype surrounding it there were a couple good songs on it but it's not one I go back to ever um I think that was like one of the more hyped albums of the 2020s and then really deliver for most people um but i might get give it a shot i don't know the cover is giving like eminem revival vibes which is not really a great thing i don't know what the obsession with like american flag drapery is in album covers but like usually it doesn't work for me wait this is for lil uzi yeah oh so uh we'll see i don't know i probably won't have time to listen to it for next week but um it is on my radar 
Um, Post Malone announced the release date for his new album, Austin. That's going to be July 28th. Again, an album that I might not even listen to, depending on how people are feeling about it, because I feel like I've had my time wasted by him over and over again. <laughs> so, Yeah, yeah, especially since it seems like it's going to be another pop record. Yeah, but we'll see how people are feeling about it. If people are feeling good, maybe we'll listen to it. Who knows? Yeah, it's a um, big maybe. Yeah, so that's very up in the air. Um, and then Slow Dive has released... Uh, when their new album's coming out, uh, September 1st. I don't know if I talked about that last night or, or last uh, week or not, but um, so that's September 1st, so coming right after the summer. Uh, that might be fun for a reaction. Who knows? We'll see what else is going on at that point. Mm. But, um, I think that's it for news. Um, apparently, Olivia Rodrigo has a new album coming. Uh, Drake announced a new album called For All the Dogs. Um, awesome. I need him to stop naming albums. <laughs> he went to, from certified lover boy to honestly never mind to her loss to for all the dogs. Um, yeah, I can't take this man seriously at all. So, oh well. Um, and I think Aphex Twin has a EP coming out in, in July twenty eighth as well. So. I don't know what's up with, like, all these 90s bands just coming back and releasing things, but here we are. Um, it's not a bad thing, though, because all these artists are pretty great. Yeah. Um, uh, the only other thing that came out this week that was of interest is uh, Max Estate released uh, Watching Movies with the Sound Off, the 10th Anniversary Edition. Um, cover's beautiful. I, the, the branding and the just, like, the way they present all this stuff has been like absolutely fantastic. I love the art, the artists they work with. The vinyl looks really, really nice. It's spendy, but like it's a collector's item for sure. Um, the only thing that's really different here is that there's a couple of bonus tracks, and then they released the OG Star Room track that I have not heard, but apparently people have been w- wanting on streaming for years. Hmm. Um, uh, it's really, really, really fantastic. Like. I love the original, like the the album version of the Star Room, but this might beat it. Honestly, the the vibe is just so different, despite it being mostly the same lyrics. But um, yeah, really fantastic. And there was a music video that went along with it that looks really really nice too. So I'm glad they're still handling um, his catalog well and only releasing things that one he would have wanted on because of you know the only reason this wasn't on the album was for uh, sampling clearance mm-hmm. issues. Um, so I'm glad that they're like getting those cleared and uploaded because these are like, like especially the OG Star Room is like one of the top Mac tracks ever. So I'll be interested to see if that Mad Lib uh, Mac Miller collab does actually come out this year. I know there were talks of that like a while ago. I'm not mm. sure if that's still the case or not, but if it does, oh boy, people are going to be all over that thing. So yeah, hmm. yeah, that'd be good. Other than that, yeah. Yeah, I do want to revisit that whole album eventually with the bonus tracks now, because um, it is one of the better ones. It's when he like really started digging into more psychedelic production and like really doing a turning point as an artist. Um, this was like right before Faces, and Faces is like a borderline masterpiece. So definitely was on like his really, really, really great trajectory there. Um, but I'll give that a listen in my own time, and maybe I'll talk about the bonus tracks once I do that. But. Um, I think that's it in terms of new stuff besides this behemoth that Michael dropped upon us. Um, so 
The Beggar came out, Swan's 16th album, I believe. Um, I feel like I've been preparing to review a new Swan's album since I've like listened to the new ones last year. Um, and I feel like I've talked about a lot of those albums at length, or at least as much length as I could talk, just because some of these albums are kind of hard to define. Um, people said, like, before listening, like, the people that had early copies or, like, listened to, you know, ripped versions of it or whatever said that it was, like, very, very, very slow. Um, I kind of disagree. This is, like, one of the easiest Swans albums to listen to, in my opinion. Um, it's definitely got a bigger focus on lyrics, and the vibe of it is completely different than... I don't want to say everything they've done because it's kind of a culmination of everything they've done. Um, mm. 1995 and upward, pretty much. Um, so you definitely get elements of the trilogy series in here, but you also get stuff from Leaving Meaning, their last album that was definitely more laid back and almost acoustic. Um, but you also get 90s Swans. There's some tracks on here that are soundtracks from the blind all the way. Um, even Children of God has like these kind of pretty uh, instrumentals that kind of make its way on here. Um, Usually it takes me a while to figure out what these albums mean. Um, I mean, like, you have The Seer, which is, you know, very, very kind of medieval in the way it's created. Um, it's very kind of uh, animalistic. There's, like, something chasing you the whole album, but you can't see what it is. It's just, like, a growing anxiety. You got a To Be Kind, which is just, like, the most primal instinct that music can provide. And then The Glowing Man, which is just, like, Transcendence. This album kind of takes all three, but it puts it in a very, very central concept that's kind of hard to miss. Um, for context, Michael Jira is like almost 70 at this point, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of insane. Like, the catalog that he's built and still going is kind of crazy. I do think he's going to be a Clint Eastwood kind of guy and yeah. just keep making until he drops. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I see it. Um, but this album absolutely is about mortality and him either coming to terms with it or actively fighting against it by even making this music. Um, I don't understand how he can tour for like the past four years and like play mind-numbingly loud music and not be completely deaf. <laughs> He's talked about tinnitus a couple of times and how there's always like the ocean in his ear or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just surprised he hasn't lost all of his hearing yet. But yeah, this new album, uh, I think there's 11 tracks. Yeah, 11 tracks. Um, two hours, one minute. A lot of these things are... Eh, they're about 10 minutes long, um, besides The Behemoth. That is an album in itself, but we'll get to that later. Um, opens with The Parasite. Fantastic. Like, It's a perfect intro song in the fact that it's pretty bare. Um, the only real musical motif that happens for the most of this song is just a kind of culmination of all the instruments strumming and one beat. Um, and then just his vocals kind of like mixed in this kind of choir, super big room type of way, um, immediately pulls you in at this, like this parasite eating at him. Uh, I'm definitely thinking this is just, you know, aging. Um, people are like kind of wondering if he has cancer or something the way that he talks about, uh, death on this album, but I really do think it's just old age. Um, yeah. I wouldn't go into anything as drastic as that because like, that would be kind of severe to do. I don't think it's quite a David Bowie Black Star moment. I think it's like I'm making an album that could be my last if I'm not able to make another one. All um, right. And he's just kind of battling with like he can't do all the things his body used to be able to do. Um, 
and it's like really, really the whole record, the writing is fantastic. He really gets at the emotional element without being too abstract. Like he usually is. Usually you have to like feel the music physically for you to kind of get it. This one, he's really, really open with uh, the subject matter. Um, and it's really kind of vulnerable in a way that you don't really see from him much. I think soundtracks to the blind was probably the most vulnerable up until this point, but, um, yeah, intro's fantastic. I, the soundscapes on this thing are nuts. This one's very minimal, um, but definitely gets the job done. I just love the way that, like, the band coalesces in just, like, one stroke of an instrument to create a soundscape that's kind of wide open and a little bit eerie. Um, Paradise is Mine is the first single. That was the second track. Um, definitely a little bit more ethereal. There's, like, these female backing vocals that really elevate it and give it more of, like, a ethereal, almost heavenly, ap like, afterworld kind of feel. Um, still really great. I think it fits great in the context of the album. Uh, definitely my favorite single out of the two. Um, Los Angeles City of Death, again, pretty good. This is definitely, like, a great Annihilator-type track. Um, pretty straight, cut-forward uh, alt-rock, which is still pretty heavy for them. But once we get past here, this is where it gets really strange. I was expecting this thing to be brutal, um, which is to be expected with a Swans album. Um, but they come across like really, really, really beautiful on this record multiple times. Like you got xylophones and stuff entering here. Um, and these, there's multiple songs in a major key, which I don't think is, they've ever done besides like a couple of songs in the eighties. Um, but the, the instrumentation is just amazing. It's fantastic. Um, it sounds so blissful, even though he's like talking about like his ultimate demise um, in the first person on this song, uh, and Michael's done, and it's like the instrumental is just like the most joyous, free thing in the world. It's really strange, um, but I, it's so crazy how like I think he, the lineup for this he kind of took from his side project, Angels of Light, which they did a little bit more ethereal, ethereal music, so it makes sense. Um, but uh, Ben Frost also helps on this record. Uh, he made the soundtrack for Dark, um, which is definitely a related theme on this thing. They both give off this like kind of weird, almost, it's still abstract, but you can pick out themes if you pay attention. Um, it's It just gives a really cool ominous feel to everything. But yeah, the next couple of tracks are like <laughs> really kind of major key and feel a little bit off but they feel I mean they sound amazing the more I've listened to them the more I like it every single time um and then you get to the title track the title track is 10 minutes long um you definitely get the more ominous swans back here this is what they're known for um the bass groove on this track is amazing it feels like a noir film almost in the way that it's like got this really kind of dark and moody feel to it but it's still ominous um, Michael kind of goes into his uh, very creepy kind of vocal style um, and at one point just like does the weirdest scream in the middle of the song ever <laughs> um, but the energy on this one is great um, I think people are saying this one is this album is slow because there is no like minute-long crescendo builds or like pummeling of instrumentation through headphones it's all very nuanced um, like intentionally pieced out music that like definitely enters in different elements when it absolutely needs to. Um, 
So with listening with headphones or loud on speakers is perfect for this because you can get all those little subtleties as they come in, um, and it really adds to the storytelling of it. So fantastic. No More of This could easily be the band's last song. I believe on the vinyl version, this is the last track, which is definitely not giving me confidence of another Swans album coming because this sounds like a Swan song, uh, no pun intended, for this group. So, um, But absolutely gorgeous song, like... I don't know how he put this right in the middle because this would be like a gut punch if you put this at the very end. Um, Ebbing is fantastic as well. It kind of goes back to the uh, Glowing Man kind of uh, formula where you kind of get a very, very, very slow build with atmospheric stuff. And then uh, the song slowly builds into kind of this um, overbearing like whirlwind of ethereal sound that makes you just kind of feel like you're floating. Um, Really, really, really fantastic. Uh, why can't I have what I want all the time? Any time that I want, uh, gets back into the more eerie stuff. Um, again, like this really cool bass lines that drive this album are fantastic. Um, I wish they would play more with these kind of things because it gives such like a very cool dark atmosphere rather than like a more off-putting one. Um, because you can definitely groove to these things. Um, and the backing vocals. Backing vocals added to this is, like, really great as well. It gives this kind of, like... There's elements of this album that sound like The Wall to me, where it's this kind of, like, play and character, and they kind of add a little bit of stage show and theater in there. Mm-hmm. Um, just a tiny bit. And it's really, really, really good. Uh, it's, like, these, like, skeletons, like, enticing someone to come to the underworld, or, like, the skeletons you'll see in Disney movies that kind of dance around and do funny stuff. <laughs> it kind of feels like that. <laughs> um, but that was that was the first disc. That was a majority of the album. But you have to remember there's an entire mini album in this that's 44 minutes long. Um, so The Beggar Lover 3 is, like, this album was really great up until this point. And then once this happened, it completely just, like, I don't know... I can't think about this album the same way after this. Um, This is like their third longest song I think they've ever made. Um, The two longer ones being, I think, both live songs. Um, But this song includes, I think, I don't have a number, but I'm going to guess 10 to 12 reused passages from past Swan songs. Um, His wife and his kid are on here. Um, and the thing, it definitely reads more like a David Lynch movie than a song. Um, these passages kind of come and go randomly, um, or so it seems. I think the song is meant to portray actual death, um, and the stage is going to it, because there are ones where it's like, you can pick out these like past songs from the group um, in a different recontextualized zone, and it gets really kind of eerie because the, con- the context is different, and it feels like a callback and a send-off at the same time. Um, but it's very... There's a fog of war around you the whole time. You never know what's going to happen. Um, you're on edge all the time, and there is no big crescendo build in this track like every other long track they usually do. Um, so some people might not find that appealing, but there are sections of the song that like a groove sets in and it's pretty nuts. Um, but his wife kind of comes in like four minutes in and does this kind of mantra and like a really monotone, emotionless voice. Um, it, it's so offsetting and creepy. Um, you get these different instrumental builds. Um, the lyrics are like about him closing his eyes and going to sleep. 
um, in kind of a sing-songy, like, child nursery rhyme form. Um, and eventually baby noises start coming in. Uh, his daughter comes in and sings, like, a, a, like a fairy tale song. Um, it's like the Knick-Knack Paddywhack song. Uh, she comes in and does that over, like, this really, really chilling instrumental. Um, it is It is an experience. I've never... Even after listening to their entire catalog, there are a few songs like this one where it's like, oh man, um, you've just encompassed your entire life and musical career in 44 minutes, and it's not necessarily a happy ending. It is one that is like tortured and off-putting and confusing, Um, but I mean, you get these beautiful passages. You even go back to like Helpless Child on Soundtracks for the Blind. They bring that drone back at like seven minutes in. Um, and anybody that's like listened to their whole catalog, I think this album is definitely one that like you can go to after you've listened to like their big albums, um, because otherwise this the song isn't gonna hit as hard. Because when you hear that drone, it's like ooh, that takes you way back to that song and the feelings that that song gives. You have parts of the glowing mid here that feel like they're like larger than life. Um, it just encompasses everything. It's kind of insane, but yeah. Uh, incredible, incredible song. Um, this could definitely be the closer. Uh, the Memorials close it, closes it. Um, still a pretty good song. I, if anything would change about this album, I would swap the Memorials with no more of this, and I think it would be absolutely perfect. Um, just to give that added emotion at the end with the kind of beauty of no more of this instead of the more uh, kind of eerie and honestly like loud song that the Memorials is. Um, that's the one I go back to the least so far. But, yeah, overall, this this thing is absolutely incredible. Um, this could definitely be their last album, uh, and if it is, it's not a bad thing because this would be a perfect send-off. It's definitely a moon-shaped pool situation with Radiohead where it's like, this is a perfect send-off if you choose not to do anything else. Um, but knowing him, I think he's going to keep making until he just drops over dead. Uh, he's definitely going to be doing the 90-year-old Clint Eastwood thing. Or the or Miyazaki thing. Or the Miyazaki thing, yes. <laughs> to call back to earlier. <laughs> um, <laughs> but incredible, incredible experience. This album is um, very different than I was expecting it to be, but I was pleasantly surprised. It definitely took a couple of listens to its tracks to kind of like, because the first time you listen to it, you're like, whoa, this is very different. I don't know how to feel about this. Um, but the second time, everything just made complete sense. Um so fantastic. Um, I feel really bad for Billy Woods because I feel like I give him like the second best album every single year. There's always one thing that beats him out. <laughs> um, but this thing is probably going to beat him out for sure. Um, I need to listen to it more. Obviously it just came out. It's two hours long. It's, it's definitely not the easiest thing to review right away. Um, but amazing. I mean, even down to the album artwork, like I haven't listened to my vinyl yet, but even the album artwork of just like the different body parts and like how he talks about uh, his alcoholism and like things that kind of start failing as you get older, it all just kind of completes the whole package of this record. So amazing. Um, I would definitely recommend listening to some other Swans albums before listening to this just to get the full effect. Um, But I mean, if you like The Wall and you're into more noise rock, I feel like this is a perfect combo for you because there are a lot of like, the wall moments on here. Um, surprisingly, I feel like they never pull influence from areas like that, but yeah, fantastic. Amazing. Um, it'll be hard to beat this this year. That's for sure. I don't know if there's anything even projected to come out that would, you know, be better than this for me. Um, but we'll, we'll see. 
I'd save all adjustments bef- until after the new Post Malone record. Comes That's out. true. I need to wait until after the Post Malone record to say that for sure. <laughs> yeah. He could drop the best album known to man. <laughs> we don't know. We it's don't know. possible. <laughs> Travis Scott hasn't dropped a token yet. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but very, 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 very good. I cannot recommend enough, even though I do know that it's not for everybody. But if you are the people that are into this, then you better listen to it. <laughs> um, it was weird because this was like a super long post rock album, and we just had Sigaros like the previous week, so. And these are both bands that I like talked extensively about last year, um, and they're both very long form music. So, it's weird how that works. I feel like we predict a lot of weird things on the podcast in really strange ways. It's we true. have some weird timing with things that happen. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so that's music. Um, we'll, see. we'll transition to my other segment now. Um, time for my edge prop quarter. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So last time we kind of talked about neoliberal policy and propaganda um, and how it individualizes societal and uh, social issues that seep into our every aspect of our lives. Um, if you didn't listen to that one, you can go back to podcasts and find that. Um, I've been kind of going biweekly on these things because it's kind of easier to gather my thoughts and revise my writing as it goes. Um, but this time uh, we're going to dive a little bit into theory and some philosophy, not too much, um, but I have to do it so we can describe alienation um, and kind of the loneliness and issues that come with that. Um, I try not to be too theory heavy or at least not forward about theory in this segment, um, but for a topic like this, it is kind of necessary because it is like such a ground point um, to talk about this. So. Uh, this will kind of tie into the neoliberal segment that I did two weeks ago. Um, and then my next next time I do the segment will be advertising, and this will kind of be this little trio of things that all kind of tie into each other. Um, so I'll kind of hint at that at the end here. Um, but uh, alienation is a Marxist term. Um, it's the process whereby the worker is made to feel foreign to the products of his or her own labor. Um, a little passage from Marx here. I'm going to be taking a lot from... Um, Sorry, this is a big old annoying title. I don't. I think this text was actually um, found uh, later in his after he was gone. Um, but I'm going to be pulling from the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844, as well as some of Capital for this. Um, so he says the creation of commodities lead uh, need not lead to alienation and can indeed be highly satisfying. One pours one's sub- subjectivity into an object, and one can e- even gain employment from the fact that in another. That another in turns, uh, in turn gains employment from our craft. In capitalism, the worker is exploited insofar that he does not work to create a product that he then sells to a real person. Instead, the proletariat works in order to live, uh, in order to obtain the very means of life, which can only be achieved uh, by selling his labor to the capitalist for wage, um, as if his labor were itself a property that can be bought and sold. The worker is alienated from his or her product precisely because uh, he or she no longer owns that product, which now belongs to the capitalist who has purchased the proletariat's labor power in exchange for exclusive ownership over the proletariat's products and all profit accrued by the sale of those products. So I'm going to break that down and not fancy Marx language um, because there's like a ton of jargon that comes with this stuff and I find it actually kind of hard to explain now that I'm so deep into that stuff. So this is a good exercise for me to put it in normal person words too. Um, 
But first off, just to get it out of the way, capitalism did not invent alienation, um, but it just created new ways of alienation that didn't exist under the feudal system. Um, this is not saying that the feudal system is better. This is just saying, you know, how it evolved. Um, alienation basically means that there is a rupture or a hole um, where there shouldn't be. Um, and it's not just a feeling, but it is definitely felt. There is a real material relationship that is at play here. Um, we can actually break down production and see how it alienates us from four things. Um, those four things being nature, work, others, and self. Um, so nature, nature holds no value except as a resource of which to extract resources and capital. Um, Marx's view of nature is a little bit different than what we would define as nature. He is a philosopher. Um, it includes the environment and animals, but it also includes human nature of transforming and the natural world that has transformed. Um, and as commodities en enter through capitalism, it can fracture this relationship with humans and nature. Um, it disconnects from the self, as in you are not just you aren't here just to be human and explore and learn whatever it is you desire. Um, instead, you are a re replaceable cog in a machine with the sole purpose of producing profit for a faceless company or capitalist. You virtually have no say in what gets produced, how you produce it, etc. Um, it isn't always this comically depressing or black and white as this. You can still have relationships with coworkers and bosses. Of course, it's not like you're just one person and everybody's your enemy. Um, you can enjoy your work and get some kind of, you know, fulfillment from that to some extent. Um, but this isn't the case for, you know, around 80% of workers. Um, and a big reason for this is meaningfulness. So meaningfulness is kind of the feeling that you are contributing to something useful or valuable. Um, if you tell yourself every day that you're going to your job to produce a product for people that will help people, um, it's a lot easier than just saying that you're pro provi uh, providing profit to a capitalist and getting not much in return. Um, so others, um, people are often seen as competition as you compete for re resources, wages, attention, job positions, etc. Um, that or there's someone like your boss who has a great power over your life, um, which can make for some awkward relationships. Um, and finally, it uh, alienates through work. Um, we turn ourselves into commodities when we sell our labor power to our employers. Being interchangeable means you need to be competitive in the labor market against your fellow worker. Um, and there are fewer jobs than people to fill them, which also adds to the competitive nature of it. Um, to kind of further explain this and just do a little bit more of theory digging before we get into how this applies to um, people nowadays, um, even though like he was able to predict this in the mid-1800s, which was kind of crazy. Um, but we're going to do a breakdown of the capitalist mode of production a little bit to explain. Um, so as workers, you make something. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, they do their job and get paid a wage in exchange for their labor power. Um, it doesn't matter if you're getting paid $10 or $100 an hour. Workers produce more profit than they are paid. Um, this leads to one of the cornerstones of Marxist, uh, Marxist theory, which is surplus value. Um, surplus value is the excess value that workers create. Um, the surplus goes to the capitalist who, po who pockets the profit of the worker's labor, um, therefore exploiting their labor. Um, exploitation is not defined in Marxism as it is you know, normally where it's like, you know, physical harm or anything like that. Um, exploitation in this sense is basically stealing from the worker. Um, <clears throat> so basically the ta the capitalist takes all the money you create during your job. Um, they give you a portion back of it in the form of a wage. doesn't really matter if it's hourly, salary, uh, you know, commission, etc. cetera. Um, then they pay the expenses needed to keep the company going and then they pocket the rest all from your labor. Um, there is no physical labor from the capitalist in this system. Um, 
So let's say you make uh, $50 an hour. This might not be so bad for you. Um, you can kind of ignore this exploitation because you can, you, you can buy you little treats and trinkets that keep you kind of satisfied. Um, but this does not change the fact that you are still an interchangeable cog. Um, so being that cog doesn't really inspire much confidence in what you're contributing to society or the world. Um, and in a way, it kind of removes the human element, element from your life. And we'll talk about that a little, a little bit later. Um, this competition and exploitation can also kind of breed predatory and greedy behavior. Um, so under capitalism, work is also uh, often compartmentalized. So let's say you have one or two tasks in your role, um, and you often don't know about the big picture of your labor. Um, so for example, if you wanted to make shoes for a living, um, you would most likely get hired to make one or two parts of a shoe and probably won't be taught about how to create the other parts of the shoe that would be designated to other workers. Um, this is different than production, say, in pre-capitalist feudal societies, where a shoemaker would go through and produce all parts to make that shoe, um, and then they would then exchange that shoe for another commodity or item, you know, bread, whatever they need. Um, but in capitalism, you probably wouldn't even see the end product of your labor. Um, you do your two parts, you send them off into the ether, um, other workers do the same. Magically, this production happens, and the finished shoe is let out to the market. Uh, but you will never actually see that shoe, let alone be able to profit off of it or even use it as a functional item um, like the capitalist does. So by doing this, we are further alienated in the way that we are kind of interchangeable and kept away from the other workers who build a different shoe part than you. Um, this also makes it so you can do quote-unquote unskilled labor, so you're incredibly interchangeable. Um, so this in turn kind of alienates us from ourselves and those around us further. Um, so this sounds very evil right now. This isn't some evil plot. Your boss can still be nice to you, um, but under capitalism, the, comp the competitiveness of the labor market is kind of built in. Um, so you may have friends with a coworker, uh, but if someone's going to get fired, you'd probably want it to be them. Um, and these contradictions na naturally kind of drive us apart from other humans. So uh, what's the biggest thing you're thinking about when you're at work? Uh, not being at work. <laughs> so <laughs> basically, That's as true. we work more hours and uh, stay ever connected to the office from our phones and computers, this kind of applies more to corporate work. Um, I have email on my phone, my computer, everything. I get it all day, every day, even when I'm on vacation. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, um, this kind of seeps into, like, all parts of our lives. So, for an example, if um, you get an hours increase without a pay increase, that can result in less free time that could you be socializing or doing literally anything else that you want to do. Um, and the inverse, if your hours decrease without a pay increase, then you have less money to spend on entertainment, groceries, gas, anything you need to live. Um, essentially, you are a commodity for more hours of the week than not. Um, we're expected to work, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. Of course, this varies on your profession. Um, but in the time that we're not working, we're expected to rest, stay healthy, have relationships, meet new people, have hobbies, do chores, go outside, whatever. Um, also keep in mind that after expending our energy, mental or physical, for at least eight hours a day, the remaining hours of the day are often used to recharge for the next day of work instead of doing a lot of the things that I just listed. Um, so on top of this, we can go back to last week with neoliberal, neoliberalism. Um, so if uh, you can probably like, this is pretty recent because of COVID, uh, you'll probably recognize a lot of mainstream media outlets talking about loneliness. Um, they'll often kind of take a neoliberal stance on this and say that it's up to the individual to kind of solve that problem. Um, so as we talked about last time, uh, neoliberalism kind of individualizes societal issues 
um, and it removes working class concessions, uh, concessions and programs. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of a funny side point, but like this, all, this also births things like this grind set um, where, it, you know, these influencers and people that want to buy, like get you to buy programs telling you to just work harder and longer and eventually you'll make it and you'll be successful with lots of friends and connections. Um, the grind. These things kind of pop out. The grind never stops. Um, but underneath awesome. neoliberalism, uh, social institutions like public schools lose funding, so after-school programs and stuff kind of disappear. Uh, mental health institutions get defunded. Um, you know, healthcare is privatized. Obviously, there's a lot of cuts from that. I don't need to go into that. Um, but even things like uh, recent years when, um, you know, COVID happened, a lot of people were able to work from home if you're in an office environment. Um but a lot of companies kind of shift the blame on this of being the issue of loneliness. Um, so they kind of want you to back in the office. Um, even though the work, the benefits from working from home are often pretty huge, um, you get less pressure, pressure from your managers bringing down your neck. Um, you feel like you can actually take a break um, and aren't influenced to keep working uh, because of the people around you. Um, you're able to control your environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so bring people back to the office, but solve this, obviously, you're still just as alienated from your labor as your fellow workers. <coughs> so, uh, but companies would, you know, much rather have you in a big building where you can be easily monitored, etc. cetera. Um, mm -hmm. but we can also add to this, uh, to see, we're going to do some corporate propaganda kind of peak ins. I'm not going to talk too much about this just because, um, it is very, you know, corporate centric, um, it does extend to a lot of companies, but um, office workers, I think, get the brunt of it. Um, so back in Marx's day, capitalists had a very different interaction with their workforce. Um, basically, the messaging back then was work for me or starve. Still the messaging today, but they definitely cloak it up. Um, when you're forced to sell your labor power in order for a late wage, you have the opportunity to not sell your labor, pow labor power, but you're not going to make any money then. And without social safety nets, you basically die. Homelessness, etc. you know. Um, but nowadays, it's completely different. The company now creates things like a company culture, uh, internal marketing, etc. Uh, companies love to talk about how their culture and how great it is to be connected with your fellow workers and bosses. Everybody's friends, but, you know, etc. Uh, bosses are now seen as your friend or fellow worker instead of the person who allows you to continue paying your bills. Um, and your fear, your fear of authority kind of reduces a bit when you're kind of friendly around your boss. You can crack jokes at each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and kind of erases this hierarchy from your mind. Um, and it's, it is, I don't blame people for buying into their company's culture um, because it is so much easier to buy into it um, and kind of get these relationships with bosses than to realize your real position in a company, um, which again, is an interchangeable cog. Um, and the contradictions between you and your boss are pretty great. Um, so it's much easier. Uh, it's, it's, easy to buy in because like it's much easier to say myself like I'm a marketer I do graphic design at an agency so it's much easier if I wake up every day and be like oh I help brands to have smart marketing and you know make fun and cool graphics to elevate their company's look instead of like being like oh I'm just making propaganda to make this company I have no stake or interest in look friendly and inviting and to help increase their profits um, a big part of agency life as well is having PR teams that are often um, just there to kind of stir and change narratives when there's mistakes or things that happen. Um, so essentially, if we take my job as a graphic designer, I make things for companies. Um, I basically make the files. I send them off into oblivion. They pop up nowhere or everywhere, and it's like my name is not associated with it. 
Um, even as an agency to bigger companies, the agency does not even get imagined. Um, so it's kind of a very alienating in that sense is that the work I put so much of my life into, I will never get credit for in the real world or anything like that. Um, and even if you do win awards and stuff like that, those are the agency's properties. They are not yours. Um, and another cool thing, this will be like the last point of this corporate stuff, um, is this kind of way that companies use their own brand image in the hiring process. So huge companies will often like hire college graduates at a lower rate um, because of the company name or rep uh, reputation. So for example, if you graduate and have the choice between working at Nike or some local shoe company, you'll most likely choose Nike because of that brand's prestige and incredibly popular image, which will look fantastic on a resume or LinkedIn page. Mm -hmm. um, these companies can then take advantage of you and offer lower rate. <clears throat> and offer lower, lower wages to those recent grad types and can get away with this because um, you can cite that it's a great opportunity at one of those most profi uh, profitable co companies in the world um, and that you should be able to climb your way up the corporate ladder like everybody else. Um, so that's a very quick rundown of alienation. There is a lot of um, more philosophy and economics to this, but that would be too much. <laughs> um it gets pretty complicated pretty quick, um, but the basic premise is definitely there, um, and these things can definitely lead to just increased loneliness, uh, mental health crises that we've been seeing constantly, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a main kind of component to Marxism. It's like leads to surplus value, or it can lead to it, um, which is like one of the very, very, very main concepts of it. Um, but it's a pretty... <laughs> It's a pretty depressing concept. It's one that we can see every day. Um, and from an uh, agitprop perspective, it is maybe one of the easiest concepts to talk about and get people on your side because everybody experiences this, yeah. um, no matter what your job is, no matter where you're at. Um, and, I mean, I, we experience it every week. Like, you have to main a, maintain a relationship. Uh, we have a podcast that I have to write for. We have um, videos that we need to record and edit every week. Mm -hmm. um, we have chores to do. You know, if your car has to get fixed, you got to do that. Grocery shopping, all of this. Um, and it depends on your wage because to do all of this, you need money. Um, but you also need time, which you don't have. So yeah. <laughs> it's, a pretty, it's a pretty depressing uh, <laughs> segment. Yeah. But incredibly important because in order to overcome these circumstances, we do need to know the functions of capitalism, how it works, in order to find the contradictions and bring it to a point where we can overcome it. Um, so, just a little bit of theory for you. Um, theory. This was definitely one of the more eye-opening mo uh, moments for me once I was getting into this and starting to read about it um, and see examples of it because this is one of these things where you read it and then you go out in the real world and you experience it every single time. Um, so, that's what I got. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about advertising um, and all of the great things that go along with that. That I think next week should be, or next time should be really fun. I don't know if it'll be next week. Um, I'm going to be out of town for a while. So uh, I'll be here for the podcast, but I don't the know fourth. if I'll have a segment prepared. Okay. Um, okay. But I mean, I feel like the bi weekly stuff is working well. I'm able to refine my, my scripts and be a little bit more to the point and not rambly. Um, but That's we'll talk about advertising, history of it, and its modern-day effects uh, next time. Um, and then that'll probably close out this kind of trifecta of, um, I don't even know what I want to, you know, this is just life under capitalism trifecta, current day. Um, 
There you go. But after that, I kind of want to explore things like dystopian media um, and kind of the American dream ideology that seeps into a lot of movies. I feel like that could be pretty good. Um, I just wanted to get these important topics out of the way before we go into more fun and trivial stuff. Um, But dystopian media has definitely been like something for me where it's like, ooh, this would be a fun thing to talk about um, because you have all your Blade Runners and stuff. Um, and there's this fantastic part, part, uh, <coughs> oh my God, Mark Fisher quote um, that says it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Um, and that's going to pretty much directly tie into the dystopian media segment as all those dystopian media um, things, movies, TV shows, uh, they're all still into capitalism. We can't really imagine a world past that. Um, so we're going to talk about that. And then I, I did write down weird military recruitment campaigns because I could feel like that'd be really fun. Um, we could talk about the, the weird anime stuff in Japan that we brought up earlier. Um, <laughs> we could talk about the U.S. Army's like completely failed Twitch recruitment <laughs> thing where they were trying to recruit children through eSport teams. Um, That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty so, awesome. Fun stuff. Yeah, these last ones have been really heavy, but they are very important that I do want to get them out because they are pretty um, e-components and kind of building a consciousness and your position, um, your class position in society, which is something that everybody needs to kind of gain. That's the biggest thing for the U.S. left is being educated and knowing your place um, in the society. So uh, now that a lot of this heavy stuff's out of the way, advertising will be... It'll be kind of heavy, but it won't be nearly as, you know, uh, depressing as this stuff. Um, Perfect. But that's what I got. Nice. So Um, what what you're saying is that I won't have to uh, pick movies that uh, have to... Yeah, don't worry about that this time. Okay. I mean, (laughs) I didn't... I did goof. That's okay. And still talked about something really sad and depressing, but not everything's rainbows and sunshine. No, no, it isn't. This is real life, brother. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Advertising segment is just like incredibly soul-crushingly depressing, but I'm not going to try to take that angle. I'm not a doomer. (laughs) I swear. I'm just providing. (laughs) You're not providing uh, uh, resources. You're not Father John Misty. No. Man, I've no. been uh, I've been listening to pure comedy as I've been delivering mail. I don't even know what people uh, who are outside are thinking, but uh, man, man, what a fun guy! Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I like Father John Misty. It's just like there, there. I could talk about like revolutionary optimism and how that plays into like, you know, being a revolutionary and how it kind of keeps us going, um, because a lot of the weight of this stuff is like too much to bear almost Um, yeah and a lot of that comes with taking breaks and going outside and you know disconnecting um which is kind of what i did last week when i didn't have a segment um yeah but yeah (laughs) yeah not a doomer but you should know these things (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. sometimes sometimes it is fun to be a doomer yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's fun to play into it. Yeah. For about two days, and then it gets too much, and then it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Yippee. Um, well, okay. I suppose uh, 
Yeah, I don't think there's anything big happening for next week mm-hmm. for for gaming or anything. I don't think. No gamer. Barbie I did comes try to out. play that X Defiant beta, but I did not have time. So. Oh, this is very sad. That's, that's if okay. I do have time, I'll talk about it. Big okay. sad. I do want to make a slight addendum because I did give out another five star this year. I forgot I gave Malcolm X five stars. Ah, yes. So, a little oopsie. But, I mean, both of them, those movies, I feel like, deserve it. So, I'm going to keep it. Uh, also, I saw that our buddy Grant finally increased his rating of Into the Spider-Verse. Like a complete madman. He had it at three and a half stars. I don't I don't know what happened. But I guess he rewatched it and gave it four and a half stars. He so changed his mind. He changed his mind for the better. Also, he sent me a text message from an A24 movie and told me he loved it. So maybe there's a chance... This is the Grant Redemption arc. I'm not He's sure. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, so. Yeah, that's it. Oh, speaking of, I didn't, I didn't talk about this, but just a little addendum at the end. The, the, the new season of Always Sunny is fantastic. Is it? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Surprisingly so. Okay. Um, I don't know what happened. I know that... Um, for the first time since, I think, season 11, they got the writing duo Martyr and Roselle back. That's and cool. they were a part of the writing team for, I think, season 3 through season 11. And they left. I think one of them's on Rick and Morty. Like, they all, they went off and did separate things. And then they came back for this season. And holy moly, it shows. <laughs> Like, I've only seen the first three episodes. I think there's one more out right now. But it feels like like season, like, eight or nine. Like, it feels like we're in, like, classic Sunny again. And it's crazy. Like, hold, what? I'll give it a watch. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, I was kind of blown away. Like, I watched the first two episodes when they came out. Because Grant was texting me and being like, have you seen the new episodes? They're so, so good. I'm like, oh, okay, Grant said that. But, well, he was right. <laughs> really good. So, yeah, check out Sunny if you're into it. Or if you've gone away for a while or you're not really feeling the new stuff, I would say that this new season's worth a watch. So far. It could just completely... Just... I have no idea. I have no idea. Be the worst for the rest <laughs> of the season. I suppose anything's possible, but I don't know. I don't know. I watched the first two episodes, and I'm like, okay, it's probably going to be downhill from there. And then the third episode was really, really good, too. So I don't know. Hopefully it's consistent. I know that this is the first season they've done since they've been uh, doing the podcast, where they've been rewatching the older episodes, and I feel Mm -hmm. like that probably has some impact, too, where they're getting back to the roots a little bit. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Pretty good. It it doesn't feel like I feel like the last couple of seasons have like been like political. Um Yeah. Which is fine, but this just kind of gets back to the roots and it's just a little bit it's more of that like weird quirky stuff. Yeah, they almost SNLified it the last couple of seasons. Yeah. Weird. I mean, given a couple of episodes like the 
the Mac episode. Yeah. Um, I forgot what that one's called. Where he like does the interpretive dance or whatever. <laughs> I, get really it. <laughs> I, I get it. I finally get it. Yeah, it's it's a good episode. It's just out of place in it is, the yeah. show it's in. Um, it's a great like individual piece. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's good. It's it's good. I'll have to keep watching. I've been meaning to talk about it, but I keep forgetting. So just bring it up at the end, I guess. When nobody's here. Nobody. We said that, like, on the main channel video, and then, like, a couple people... people (laughs) Actually, I watch all of it all through the video. If you're still watching, type, uh... (laughs) Bees Chugger in the comments. Bees Chugger. If you're listening on (laughs) streaming services, send us an email. Uh, You're gonna have to go to our YouTube channel. Oh. Go to our YouTube channel and (laughs) comment on the video anyways. Yeah. (laughs) Or I guess theoretically you could review it on iTunes, but I don't Just read those. <laughs> yeah, I give it five stars. Five stars, then write it. Bees trigger. It's a review. <laughs> oh, perfect. Bye.